The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. China's electric cars are charging ahead. Brian Gu, president of the 40 billion EV maker Xpeng, tells us how they're motoring into Europe, the skies and the metaverse in 2022. This Breaking News podcast is sponsored by Refinitiv, a London Stock Exchange group business. Welcome to The Exchange, a conversation with people of interest to business and financial professionals around the world. I'm Katrina Hamlin, the global production editor of Reuters Breaking Views, which is the global financial commentary arm of Reuters News, and I'm coming to you from Hong Kong. For this week's episode, I sat down with electric car maker Xpeng's president and vice chairman, Brian Gu. The conversation was part of our annual prediction series, where we asked business leaders and policymakers to help with a little crystal ball gazing for the year ahead. Brian didn't disappoint. He answered a slew of questions and framed a few new ones too. We covered everything from the impact of China's shrinking subsidies for EVs to the future of flying cars. We also debated the merits of partnerships versus going it alone to develop world-class cars and smart cars, lessons from COVID, and how automakers will motor into the metaverse. Give it a listen. Good morning, or rather good evening, Brian, and welcome to everyone who's joining us for this event, which is part of the annual Breaking Views prediction series, looking to the year ahead in business and finance. I'm Katrina Hamlin, one of our columnists based in Hong Kong, and I cover the electric vehicle industry. I'm here today with the Chinese electric vehicle maker, Xpeng's Brian Gu, who is the president and vice chairman of the company. Brian, I have a lot of questions for you today. Uh, but first of all, I noticed that in the first week of this year, Xpeng's share price fell by around 10%. And I think that means that investors have a burning question that we should probably tackle first. On New Year's Eve, the Chinese government said that it will be slashing subsidies for the electric car industry. And I think there's a lot of curiosity around what that is going to do for the industry's sales this year. Brian, could you tackle that first for us, please? Yeah, Katrina, I'm very happy to be on this program. And, uh, you know, to uh, answer your first question, I think uh, you probably have to look at the EV industry in China in the sort of holistic picture. Um, subsidy on the retail side has been actually one of the main instruments that government has been using over the years to sort of spur the growth of um, uh, EV industry. But uh, I think uh, what you've seen in the last four or five years is that subsidy has not really generated the, the momentum and uh, the positive growth that the government has intended to because I think you actually uh, develop a number of players that are actually aimed at you know, collecting subsidies in China. So uh, I think the government has since shifted its gears, you know, shifting from uh, subsidy-led policy to uh, the infrastructure and support-focused uh, uh, policy to support the uh, uh, EV industry. So what you saw in the last few years is a gradual decrease of subsidies for uh, EV sales in China. And that has been a, his, a pattern, a annual pattern already. So uh, first of all, this year's uh, um, subsidy decline is uh, totally expected because I think everyone knows that subsidy is coming down. And second thing is I think uh, the subsidy now, the, the amount of subsidy as part of a percentage of the uh, price of the vehicle is much smaller compared to a few years ago. So right now, maybe it's less than 10% of the car price. So the subsidies impact to uh, car purchases actually is much smaller th than before. 
So what I think uh, is actually driving the significant sales in the last year and you know the recent months, which probably everyone saw um, a very, very strong growth and momentum of EV penetration is not because of the subsidy levels. It's actually, I think, uh, the development of the overall EV sector, uh, having the right products, attractive features, infrastructure for charging and additional policies to support the driving of those EVs on the road. Collectively, I think I'm making uh, the EVs are a much stronger value proposition to customers. So I think uh, going forward, I think the subsidy become a much smaller part of the equation for people's purchase decisions. And more importantly, we'll be focused on the product itself, the quality, the performance, the smart technology capabilities, and obviously the design and look at the product. So I think that's what I think consumer will be focused on. So subsidy, subsidy will be less of an issue, uh, I think, going forward. That said, I've, I've noticed that uh, one of your peers, Neo, is saying that it's actually going to help make up the difference for customers who ordered a car at the end of last year before we heard this news about the latest round of cuts. Is that something that Xpeng is going to be doing as well? And you know, more broadly, do you think that in the short term, fall-in subsidies means that you'll have to, you know, add other costs, like marketing and so on, to help draw people in? Well, I think, uh, you know, we see the subsidy, you know, reduction is part of the overall cost of doing business. So whether that is uh, something that we pass through to customers or that's something that OEM absorb for themselves to, you know, market the vehicle, it's all, I think, individual companies' decision policies. I think you saw uh, a number of companies have announced that they're going to increase the price to respond to subsidy reductions. Uh, we were actually also one of those uh, companies because the strength of our product uh, in the consumer market. And there are others probably will take advantage of this reduction to produce, you know, to um, promote and uh, additional marketing uh, programs. So it's effectively a, a, a promotion uh, on your product if you are protecting your price. So I think ultimately it's, it's a total cost of marketing your product. So nonetheless, a cost of some sort. And um, obviously there's, there's a lot of other costs on your plate. You guys, for example, are extremely committed to R&D. You've made sure that you invest a substantial amount of that in that year on year. So I, I'm sure a lot of people on this call will be very interested in hearing what sort of trends you see in the year ahead in terms of capital raisings to cover these costs and other costs. Well, um, I, I won't be commenting on our own company, uh, given uh, the nature of this conversation, but I would say a few points for EV uh, and also smart EV, for that matter. What I mean, smart EV, these people committed to R&D on the smartification, uh, which includes uh, you know, smart cockpits, autonomous driving and other smart capabilities. That investment is a long-term commitment uh, because uh, you need a consistent long-term investment for uh, developing your technology. At the same time, you need to build the infrastructure on the factories, on the charging network, on your product offering, the, the models. So there's a, a significant amount of investment. So I think, uh, uh, you know, I would expect the level of investment in EV continue to be very strong. And the access, need for access for capital is also very important. So I think the the, the top players who has very strong market positions and access to capital will have advantages over the smaller or weaker players who probably will struggle to get the capital to invest uh, for their business and R&D. So I think that, that will become one of the core differences with the winners and the losers.
And obviously, investors have been really excited about the electric vehicle theme very broadly uh, in the markets in, in the last couple of years. Um, you, you mentioned the autonomous driving theme as well. Do you think that that's going to become you know, an investment theme in, in its own right in the, in the year ahead? Well, I think uh, autonomous driving is a very big topic. Um, obviously, there's different type of autonomous driving research going on. Um, they obviously be in a robo taxi and the level four autonomous driving that uh, people has you know, poured a lot of dollars into and mostly driven by software companies um, who are actually trying to come up with software only solutions. Uh, we think uh, that will probably be a little far out in terms of commercialization. Um, so our focus on the uh, autonomous driving R&D is on what we can actually deploy on our production vehicle. Uh, you know, which we are the selling or which we will be introducing very soon. So uh, right now, the regulation in China and I think around the world is allowing uh, a high level of, uh, I would say, assisted driving uh, that because you still require individual to sit behind the wheel to take over control uh, because that's what regula regulation demands. But we are trying to make sure the car has enough capabilities that it can drive in most of scenarios on its own. So when the person can actually be much more relaxed and enjoy the driving and be productive in the time they spend inside the, in a vehicle. So I think uh, there's a two different type of approach here. So um, for us, I think that is a very important aspect of your technology because it will drastically change the way that you spend time inside your vehicle. Uh, instead of staring at the road, you know, constantly and without, you know, interruption, you may be able to relax a little bit. And that, you know, uh, uh, the productivity and enjoyment and comfort will become very, very significant as the technology become more prevalent and, and more capable. So I think uh, uh, the current uh, ADAS, what we call the high degree of ADAS um, that allows uh, highway uh, uh, NGP already, which is the point-to-point uh, -point, uh, driving on highway, you know, really using the vehicle itself. Uh, we think we can use our technology to expand to more city-like scenarios, and that's our goal. But whether it will become the level four or the robo-taxi-like uh, scenarios, I think they will take many years uh, because one is regulation uh, that's not currently allowed. Two, I think technology still needs a long time to prove out. I thought there were some pilot schemes for robo taxis already in the works in China. Is, is that something Exxon's been able to be part of at all? Well, I think pilots are everywhere. Chinese government loves to have set up pilot zones in every district they can think of to demonstrate the capabilities. But the regulation right now is not opening the framework for commercialization of these services. At the same time, I think uh, no one has claimed that they are fully commercially capable. Um, so I think that uh, step will, will take probably several years at least uh, to, mm. to materialize. I think it's obvious to, to anyone listening to you now and anyone who's kind of followed your story over the last few years that the autonomous driving part of this, the, the smart part of EV, is really important to Xpeng and you know, the value proposition for your products. And unlike a lot of other companies, you, you've tended to do a lot yourself rather than working with partners and... You know, that I see the merits there, but given the limits of commercialization at the moment, it's also arguably quite an expensive approach to doing things. Can you speak a little bit about why you made the decision to take that kind of strategy and how that strategy might evolve in the next few years? Well, first of all, I want to say is we don't do everything ourselves. 
as a car company that you need to work with your suppliers, your partners. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a lot of mature, uh, you know, great suppliers that you work with that has been, you know, working and producing car parts uh, in, in, in historically. So there's no need to do everything yourself. Mm -hmm. um, the parts that we think it's very, very important to do yourself is uh, the technology that truly differentiates. But um, I mean, technology is the smartification, the software, the full stack capability uh, that we use on our, you know, um, you know, autonomous driving capabilities, our smart cabin capabilities, our electric uh, um, platform, uh, our um, uh, charging platform. I mean, some of the very high value added technologies we want to own ourselves, particularly on um, uh, the autonomous driving, which we're producing high degree of uh, assisted driving capability now, if you're using third-party solutions, uh, using in a lot of things from your suppliers, it's very hard to really innovate quickly. And also it's very difficult to differentiate from the other players in the industry. So that's why we, from very beginning, as, even as a small company, uh, we set out on a full stack software uh, sort of approach. And now I think that approach has been recognized by the market as probably the right approach if you want to build a leading um, sort of technology platform and autonomous, I mean, autonomous driving ADAS capability. Uh, and also we, we, we saw now in China and probably other parts of the world, uh, OEM companies are now changing towards our approach. Uh, they used to use uh, solutions like, um, you know, uh, holistic so solutions provided by suppliers, but now they want to develop full stack uh, in-house because exactly the reason that I just mentioned, you want to control your destiny and you want to control your innovation. I, I remember when we first started um, following some of the pure electric vehicle companies, particularly in China, where there were a lot of these companies just a few years ago, uh, I think the number was in the hundreds. We said that the technology in some ways seems simpler and perhaps there was a lower bar to entry, but I think listening to you now and thinking about how smart these cars are becoming, that's probably no longer the case. Is that right? Well, I think a lot of the companies think, yes, they can just you know add a function into their car, just like the traditional OEM. So we, we have a, a ADAS function, check the box. But where that come from? It come from uh, maybe a Bausch, uh, maybe come from a Mobileye if they want a more advanced and sexy and cooler solution. But those things they don't need to do themselves. So they just feel like, okay, we put it on our vehicle and we can sell to the customers that we have these functions. You see, we can auto park, we can do, you know, semi-automatic driving, we can do this and that. But at the end of the day, those are not your features and those are not your capabilities. And as a company, uh, as a smart EV company, uh, you need to really evolve quickly to make sure that you lead the way on those technologies rather than just taking whatever people can give you and you have no way to innovate and to, um, to evolve. So I think uh, those approaches now has been abandoned for a lot of the top companies now. I think they are now choosing to do the full stack themselves, which we saw um, uh, in the recent announcements by all these companies. The other sort of big development that is coming up on the horizon for you guys is, is your expansion beyond China. And before I ask more about that, I, I have a question on the expansion related to the autonomous driving. I, I wondered how hard is it to start in one market like China to master the software uh, have the algorithms working for that environment and then to switch over to another completely different place with very different, you know, roads and systems and so on. And then, you know, adding in the, the data part of the puzzle with the, the various data laws in, in different regions. Is that, you know, 
the biggest challenge or one of the biggest challenges that you face as you go beyond China? How does that sort of factor in on the, on the list of things you have to figure out? Well, I think uh, it, it is not easy to uh, go outside of China to uh, become a global brand. Um, and you saw the challenges faced by a lot of the Chinese companies already uh, in different parts of the world. Uh, and then in a sophisticated market like Europe, um, I think uh, there are a lot of the existing uh, players that we need to compete with to build a brand for ourselves. So brand building is not easy. Uh, you need to convince the consumers uh, that there's a brand like Expand uh, coming to U Europe and, and the product is cool and, and, and really good technology. It takes time to educate them. So I think it, it is uh, definitely uh, an investment that we need to do. But you also need to recognize the, uh, the potential on why you do this, because uh, as a leading player, uh, you know, with the technology in-house and beautiful products you can design and manufacture, you don't want to just be a China-only player. Uh, you don't want to cap, you know, cap your uh, potential just being the Chinese market. Um, the global market is many times bigger than the Chinese market, and also you're really looking for cool, you know, very uh, high quality products. And, and I think the consumer demand to see more. Um, and I, we feel like by doing comparison of our product with what's offered in, in Europe and other parts of the world, we think we have a very competitive product offering uh, that we can actually attract um, uh, customers. In. So I think there's a huge potential. Uh, and as a company, we need to make sure we are capable of tapping into that potential. Um, the challenges, in addition to the brand you mentioned, uh, also in quiets, uh, we need to really build infrastructure to sell and to service on the ground. Uh, that also takes time. I need to be very local, uh, develop local relationships um, with uh, the, the country. Uh, you know, it depends on the nature of the, the markets there. And also on the technology front, um, we certainly, you know, will we'll have to invest in doing a lot of the testing, a lot of the uh, local localization uh, for our technologies. Uh, that's investment we have to make over time. Um, like I said, it's um, clearly uh, uh, not like you can just replicate what you do in China. But a lot of the, the foundation of the technologies do the same. Um, it's still have the, 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 the infrastructure, uh, the, the, the architecture, the algorithm, uh, the, uh, uh, the, 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 the package that we put on the vehicle. But to make sure it's compliant and to make sure it works well in the in a foreign international markets, we need to test extensively in those markets if we offer those services. So those are things that we cannot you know, cut corners. So as a company, I think uh, we see big potential internationally. Uh, and we see our product be you know, exciting offerings to the customers there, but it is a long road uh, and we are willing to make the investment and willing to put in the time and infrastructure to make it work. So sometimes when, when companies move into different markets, their, their branding or, the, or their brand positioning is slightly different to what it would be back at home. I, I notice that often with, with Western brands coming in this direction towards Asia. Um, can you talk to us a little bit about what your brand position is going to be? in the European market, maybe, you know, compared to Tesla or some of those other names that the audience will be very familiar with? Well, I think, uh, you know, we has always uh, emphasized on, on the product to be a smart product. Uh, we are not simply introducing an EV. We, we think our product not only just beautifully designed, but has probably one of the most sophisticated smart capabilities uh, one can have in an EV. Uh, so that's uh, clearly something that we want to make sure the customers understand they're getting one of the smartest vehicles on the road. Secondly is that um, the, the product uh, we uh, typically uh, 
uh, in China are focused on young, uh, upscale, um, sort of uh, tech savvy uh, uh, customers. And those are ones that are willing to try uh, new features, willing to really um, uh, be excited about, you know, the different, you know, sort of a technology enabled scenarios that we can offer inside the vehicle. Uh, our vehicle uh, can be used very differently uh, and will be a very, it's almost like an exploration, uh, what you can do with that vehicle. Uh, it's, it's hugely exciting. Um, so we want to make sure the product uh, generates the same excitement that we have uh, generated in China to make, you know, we, we are the leading, you know, sort of electric vehicle companies. You know, if you look at the, all the BEV companies, we're probably the, 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 the best selling right now in, in terms of delivery last year. And we want to you know, make sure that the customers understand that they're getting the best products from China. That all makes sense to me when it comes to the, you know, the, the hardware, the, the actual car, but I, I'm wondering if there's going to be major changes in terms of the sort of services you can offer, given the higher costs that would come with recruiting and employing people in that part of the world. Also localizing the technology, you know, even things like the partnerships that you have for your infotainment, I imagine that has to be extremely different once you leave China. Mm. Um, so can you sort of tell us a little bit more about how these kind of nuances will be different in a new market? Yeah, I think, uh, first of all, uh, you know, we, we, we need to set up our sales and services infrastructure based on what's available locally. Uh, we, ha we are developing you know, relationships with leading uh, sort of service providers in each of the countries that we want to operate. Uh, we also want to maintain our own presence. Uh, so, so we're exploring a various number of models uh, in different countries. And also in terms of the, uh, uh, the service providers that we work with, uh, we would definitely have to work with local service providers for content, for mapping, for music, uh, for uh, um, you know, charging infrastructure, you know, that adoption. Mm -hmm. So those things we have to do uh, to make sure we, we offer a very com uh, competitive product uh, uh, locally. What's, what's that been like in Europe? Is, is there any sense that, you know, it's not as advanced as, as what's on offer in China? Has it been difficult from, from that perspective? Because obviously China is very far ahead with many of the aspects of these technologies. Well, I think so far, it, it, like I said, it's still in the early days. Uh, we, we only started in Norway last year. Uh, it was mm -hmm. a very, very small scale. Uh, and then we started to just introduce uh, our P7, our second product, which is you know, one of the best-selling product in China, uh, probably, you know, towards the end of last year. Um, so we, we are, you know, looking at, you know, uh, significant progresses, but still it's small scale. Like I said, we view this as an investment you have to make uh, over a long period of time. And also to mm -hmm. make sure that we really understand the local needs and, and local uh, market uh, before we decide on, you know, the specific approach uh, for, the, for the European market. Okay, that was very exciting. All right, so we, we touched on a number of the challenges there, but there's one that we didn't talk about. I'm sitting here in Hong Kong, and um, I, I'm very conscious of the fact that Hong Kong and, and also China has some of the strictest restrictions in the world right now when it comes to traveling. We have a very long quarantine, for example. And I, I was just wondering, for, for a company like yours, which is based in China, but it listed overseas and, and doing lots of interesting things around the world. Um, how difficult has it been to cope with the COVID travel restrictions and, and particularly those around Greater China? Well, I think, uh, you know, the quarantine restrictions are nuance for sure. I mean, I have quarantined um, about six times already and I'm looking towards my seventh time quarantine very soon. Um, yes, I mean, it, it will take up a lot of your personal time. But as a company, you need to adjust to the way of working in a COVID environment. 
Um, just give an example. Uh, we did our US IPO, uh, we did our Hong Kong IPO, we did our US uh, follow-on, all without seeing anybody. I mean, we actually did all the deals in a conference room and did video conferences with all the investors around the world. And we did it very successfully. Um, so I think uh, as a company, you just need to adapt to new ways of working. Um, and, and those are challenges you have to overcome. Um, I don't think you have any excuses for not doing things because it's COVID restrictions uh, on travel. Uh, you know, there are also business related, you know, challenges when, you know, obviously in China, if there's COVID and there are certain businesses become impacted and local, you know, shut down and stuff, but you just have to work through that. Um, you know, we obviously hope for no major disruption to operations or factories or R&D, um, but, you know, we faced, you know, so our, our uh, suppliers, you know, had some issues with COVID related shutdown, even our international supplier uh, in other countries being impacted by COVID. All these are actually things as a company you have to overcome. So, so I think uh, what we learned in the last two years is yes, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a different world. Uh, it's much more, uh, I would say, restrictive uh, world uh, for free flowing, you know, in, you know, merchandise and people. But at the same time, uh, as a company, you don't have to, you cannot miss a beat. You just have to, you know, figure out a way to get it done. And, and I think so far we have, have done well uh, coping with the situation. So you haven't had to change any plans or, you know, the time frame for any of your plans? I think uh, we have uh, achieved, uh, you know, the business plan that we have set out, um, you know, in, in each of those years uh, under COVID, uh, which I think uh, is quite rather re remarkable. Uh, and also, um, I think as a company, you have to be always preparing for alternatives. Um, you know, mm -hmm. for example, if we talk about suppliers, uh, we worry about supplier being impacted, then we develop two to three alternative suppliers in case one get impacted. You just have mm -hmm. to put in a lot more work and a lot more effort to make sure that things will continue. Speaking of suppliers, chip supply has, has obviously been a big theme for this industry in recent months. And you don't seem to have been too badly hurt by uh, the, the chip shortages. Can you tell us a little bit about how you manage that and how, what you expect to see in terms of chip supply uh, in the year ahead? Well, I think uh, no one escapes uh, the chip shortage or the supply chain shortage uh, on chips. Um, it's, it's an industry-wide you know, uh, you know, problem. And uh, you know, all I can say is that we just have been very, very focused and very nimble on you know, trying to deal with the issues. Uh, it does you know, you know, have an impact on our business. And I think it impacted every other car company. You know, nobody can be an exception there. Uh, I think everyone's coping with it to the maximum you know, capability they have. Um, as a company right now, we're still not you know, so big that we have to find a million parts every month uh, for, for the production. Uh, I think that would be impossible, but for finding you know, 10,000 parts uh, for a month, uh, maybe you know, we, we can figure out a way to, to be nimble around it. Uh, and also I think um, uh, it is something that will, will, will last for um, you know, well into this year. Um, I think uh, you know, it is uh, something that um, as a company, you know, just have to learn how to deal with it. And uh, um, like I said, you know, do a, lo a lot of work, for, you know, um, uh, making sure you have good backup suppliers um, to make sure you have alternative sources, um, to uh, make sure you have technologies that allows you to be, you know, you know, to, to have more access to, to players. Uh, you just 
need to do all kinds of work to make sure you're, you're as safe as you can. Hmm. What are the other big changes or developments coming up in terms of supply chain in the year ahead? Like, do you foresee any other um, kinks in the supply chain making headlines for the auto industry? And conversely as well, are there any um, you know, bright spots in your supply chain where you can see that the costs are going to be falling quite a lot in the near future? Well, I think supply chain uh, for the industry will continue to be uh, something uh, that everyone will be focused on, um, you know, but most part of the supply chain is okay. Uh, I think it's China has one of the best uh, sort of uh, uh, suppliers uh, for this industry and, uh, and also at a very competitive cost. So we have actually good advantage to be operating in China because most of the uh, parts uh, or suppliers can be locally located and, and manufacturing. Um, I think, uh, um, you know, obviously we are, uh, you know, obviously constantly worry about disruption and logistics, uh, given the COVID restrictions and, and the trade environment um, and, uh, you know, inefficiency caused by, you know, uh, COVID measures. Um, so that will have an impact on the supply chain in the near term. Um, you know, some of the, uh, 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 you know, the semiconductor uh, shortage will, will linger on for, for a while, I think, this year. Um, and I think, uh, you know, there's also um, for industry, you know, uh, need to focus on, um, you, know, you know, commodity prices and some, you know, uh, natural resource prices, whether that will have impact on, on, on the uh, supply chain, um, you know, given the, the, the overall environment. But I think uh, um, the bright spot is that I think uh, things will get better rather than get worse. Uh, that's my prediction for this year. Uh, I think uh, it will probably be still uh, something you know, both, uh, uh, the challenge faced by everybody in the industry. But I think as the year goes, goes on, I think you'll see uh, uh, the, the, the crisis on the supply chain become uh, much more uh, manageable. And I think that that will be a silver lining there. Mm, okay, well, just one more question on, on the whole COVID aspect of things then. We've, we've had a couple of years of this and I don't know how many more years of, of these restrictions we're facing, uh, particularly in this part of the world where everyone's very careful. I was just wondering, you know, thinking about um, Hong Kong's role for uh, capital raisings for, for this industry, how, how do you think that might change or develop over the next couple of years? If, if Hong Kong continues to be as isolated as it is with these very, very um, strict regulations, do you think, you know, companies like Xpeng, um, who, who previously come here to list, you're here for a dual listing, would look elsewhere or think about doing things differently? Well, first of all, I don't want to comment on Hong Kong uh, generally uh, because it's a, such a complicated you know, topic. Uh, but we are very uh, happy to be listed in Hong Kong. I think uh, it is a, a natural move for, for Xpeng uh, to have dual listing status. And I think at the process, during the process, which is under COVID uh, environment, uh, we have uh, had you know tremendous amount of uh, support uh, from uh, you know uh, all all aspects of the you know Hong Kong financial markets. So 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 far, I think our experience in Hong Kong has been very positive, and I I believe it is the right move for us to be here. Um, so yeah, that's all I can say. Looking to elsewhere in the world, then um, we've spoken about the European markets. I'd love to know what you think about the U.S. market as a possibility for for Xpeng in the future, and you know, are there markets beyond that that would make sense for your next steps as, as you expand beyond China and Europe? Well, I think uh, the international market opportunity does not stop at 
Europe, right? I mean, if you are, you know, want to be an international player, you have to look at other markets. So, so we will be looking to additional markets. Uh, again, I think that that will take time. Uh, it's not something you want to jump in and do right away as mini, mini market. As a young company, we don't want to be distracted, um, but we want to focus on the opportunity. Um, U.S. is a big market, but um, it, it probably, you know, need to wait a little bit before we have the resources and focus to do it. Yeah, I, I'm laughing a little bit as you answer to that, because what, what you're saying sounds very sensible. And yet some companies are jumping in, or at least talking about jumping in. So I guess there's a balance to be struck there, because if you wait too long, you lose that first mover advantage, right? So when you say you need to be careful and not move too quickly, what are you thinking in terms of time frame? What's the sort of the big picture? Well, I, I think as a company, uh, you want to really go into the market when the market is seeing the inflection point coming. Uh, because if you go in the too early uh, with very little penetration, very little infrastructure to support EV, you're not going to move uh, as a company. So, so we will obviously want to uh, focus on uh, countries that have good infrastructure, good policy, good user preference for EVs already. Uh, so we actually can offer a product. And, and so we don't need to educate a different country, you know, why you want to you know, use EV, right? Um, so I think we, we will evaluate the country opportunities one by one uh, to see whether it is the right time to, to enter those markets. Uh, but we don't want to be entering a market that does not have the infrastructure to support EV and you know, does not have the uh, consumer awareness for EV products and the penetration is very, very low. And then we, we, we think that, that would be a waste of time for us. Yeah, I, I mean, clearly you wouldn't enter a market where there was really no infrastructure, but what are the inflection points that help you to identify when the time is right then? I mean, how would you sort of quantify or, or qualify that a little bit? Well, I think, uh, you know, um, if you look at the technology um, in the past, um, maybe smartphones or others, uh, I think inflection points typically happen around 10% of market penetration. Um, so, mm -hmm. for example, 10% of the, when 10% of the smartphone, uh, the, the phone sales become smartphones, it took off really quickly. Uh, and then just in China, you know, when we reach 10% in EVs, then it, it's a quick shoot towards 20%. So I think uh, there is an uh, uh, inflection point at, a, at a, you know, probably around 10% for a market. Um, that's because uh, you know, at that time, you know, the consumers who are really well educated, uh, they, they actually doesn't worry about EV as a product to buy and they have friends who are buying it. They can say, okay, um, I'm happy. I'm comfortable that these are the right choices. I don't need to second guess myself. So I think there is an um, a, a, a inflection point when we get a critical mass of products and uh, consumers. Looking around other parts of Asia, I, I don't think there's a lot of places that have reached your inflection points yet, but are there particular markets in Southeast Asia, for example, that you think might, in the sort of, I don't know, near to midterm, become an interesting place for an electric vehicle company to look around? Well, I think, uh, you know, there certainly are uh, interesting markets um, uh, and we'll be watching their growth uh, and also the EV penetration growth and infrastructure build-out growth uh, to see whether uh, it, it's time to start thinking and developing our presence. Um, but I think, uh, you know, at, at, at the moment, I think right now we're just studying it. What about uh, electric vehicle brands from those other markets? We're starting to see a few names emerge. You mean local brands in, in Southeast Asia or? Uh, yeah, or yeah. 
I think so far we have not seen a company that's trying to do exactly what we're trying to do in China. Um, and clearly we're trying to build something, not just an EV. Um, and that, that's, you know, that's why Xpand is focused on the R&D part. And uh, if we are doing a just traditional uh, electric vehicle, uh, powered and electric powered vehicle, that probably is not as exciting as what we want to see our product become used differently. I wondered as well what you make of the traditional automakers who are trying to do a lot more in this space. You know, just in the last few weeks, I've seen some big names announcing tens of billions of investment to expand their electric vehicle offerings. How do you kind of look at them as, as competitors? What do you think the sort of the strengths and weaknesses are for a traditional automaker entering this space versus a, a dedicated EV maker like yourselves? No, I think the traditional OEMs have a tremendous amount of resources. I mean, they have infrastructure, they have the, 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 the funding, uh, they have access to capital, uh, they have, you know, you know, uh, you know, the manufacturing capabilities and network. Um, but they, what they lack is actually, I think, uh, uh, the ability to really develop um, different products, um, you know, software-defined products. Uh, that's something I think OEM is trying to catch up. I think it takes time. I mean, I think obviously OEM has been really, really uh, focused on uh, building EV presence. Uh, some of the larger OEMs already uh, are, are putting out targets uh, for huge, you know, huge targets and also putting out uh, roadmap to 100% EV in, in a few years. Uh, so I think, uh, you know, there, those are large commitments people have made. But so far, I think uh, we need to, um, uh, you know, see whether they can actually uh, really, you know, have the, 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 the technology and software uh, capabilities to really make different products uh, that is truly uh, innovative. Um, that's something I think the pure electric companies probably be more nimble and because the DNA uh, people came from different industries can actually be able to uh, think more creatively um, uh, for those changes. So I think that both sides has, has uh, advantages, um, but I think uh, if you want to look to the future, to what the product is gonna be and how innovative and creative um, uh, 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 um, electric uh, mobility solution is gonna be, uh, I would say you need probably more outside thinking um, than, than focus on just traditional OEMs. I guess that means there's gonna be a very competitive market for talent in the near future. I'm imagining it's going to be very difficult to find, you know, not only the engineers that you need, but also, you know, the executives that, that have worked in, in similar markets with similar products. The war for talent is, uh, is, is huge, uh, given um, what we're focused on that everybody else is trying to focus on. I think uh, it, it is also goes to the roots of the company. You know, what you think are the critical pieces that you want to hire the best people for. Um, we clearly think that's in the R&D areas. We clearly think these are in the areas that really you know, define uh, what the future is going to be for us. Um, mm -hmm. So I think, uh, and also because of our positioning and our you know, current leadership position in these areas, I think we actually are attracting uh, people to our organization for these capabilities. So I think it is a, a, a mutual sort of attraction uh, that, that hopefully can get us slightly ahead of the, you know, sort of talent battle curves. We're going to turn the, we're going to turn this over to the audience soon for audience Q&A. But before we do that, I wanted to ask you about flying cars. I saw that you guys have some pretty exciting things planned in the year ahead, potentially test flights for an X-Plum flying car. 
And the press release that I saw described these as not just flying cars, but real flying cars. I'd love you to tell us a little bit more about what, what's meant by that and also how that fits into your, your broader business model as a group. Well, first of all, I think uh, XPAN uh, want to be positioning ourselves as a leader you know, exploring all kinds of mobility solutions, uh, not just on a vehicle. Um, so I think we are trying to create an ecosystem that really utilizes our core competencies, which are the electric powertrain, uh, the smart capabilities, the sensing, the autonomous driving, autonomous uh, you know, flying or, or like sensing capabilities and lightweight technology, et cetera, to build um, an ecosystem, different flying mobility solutions, different mobility solutions. Um, so flying car is actually uh, 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 currently uh, developed by one of our affiliate companies. Uh, it's not by Xpan ourselves. Uh, it's a company that we have invested in um, as a minority investor, but it shares a lot of the technology platforms with uh, Xpan. Um, it is actually trying to develop a product that uh, position itself still as, as a vehicle, but with ability to uh, uh, fly. And we think that will probably be the, the right uh, sort of uh, product to attract uh, consumer attention because if you're just selling a flying flying device for example human you know flying device who's going to buy it uh it's not something that you know every family want to own one uh just put it in in, in in their house but if there's a car that actually can be driven let's say on a daily basis just like a you know cool sports car uh, um, and that's electric power sports car and it, it can you know uh, uh, also uh, fly for you know a small range I think that would be very appealing especially considering that um, you know the regulation is probably not gonna in the near term allow a flying over you know large urban areas uh, it's still I think with the closed airspace uh, especially in China uh, but I think uh, there will be spaces on outskirts of the cities or, or, or in in internal to, uh, provinces that actually allow you to, to fly or test low altitude flying. And that's where the product can be used and to demonstrate and experienced. So the, the product that we're trying to develop, uh, hopefully by, by the end of 2024, uh, we have the consumer version out, uh, is that something that we can use to drive, but there are chances you can actually you know, fly uh, and then really experience the, 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 the flying uh, capabilities. And we think that's going to be uh, one of the future because I think the low altitude flying will be actually a critical uh, uh, component of the, the, the mobility e uh, economy in the future. And I want to be you know, the pioneer right now. Do you think China is going to be the market where that is pioneered first? Well, I think uh, the product, uh, uh, we actually debated, uh, the product could be very uh, uh, suitable for maybe you know, starting in the international markets because there's more relaxed uh, some regulations. Uh, but I think in China, uh, the advantage is that there are a lot of test zones uh, the government are putting out uh, in different provinces. And I think uh, because the first product is still going to be very much uh, like a car you can drive, uh, EV like you drive. So um, the, you know, the ability to fly will be very appealing, but it's not going to be the main reason people buy that product. And mm. also, um, you know, we want to keep the price uh, affordable. Um, so I think that, that will probably likely to be the scenario that we have uh, for the first model. All right, great. Okay, so we, we touched on this earlier, but in, in terms of autonomous driving and software, you want to develop solutions internally. Is it a problem if every manufacturer does this? Why not use open source? Well, I think, um, 
they are, you know, third-party autonomous uh, driving solution providers like Mobileye, like Bausch, uh, like others, uh, trying to develop that. Um, and I don't think we we currently don't see them as uh, offering compelling products for our vehicles because we feel like um, in order to have really really the best in-class technology, you need to really understand the hardware and the software. Uh, together and know how to operate uh, that uh, in a you know you know production vehicle. So that capability can only be had by the company itself, rather than rely on outside uh, service providers. Um, in the long run, whether uh, there will be potential for some of the uh, you know low end solutions to be offered by third party, uh, that could be possible. But I think. Uh, for a company that focused on providing the leading uh, technology and solutions, I think currently we think uh, having the capability in-house that understanding uh, the hardware and the software and the operation uh, operating capabilities is, is important to produce the, the, the best uh, solutions. This question about to what extent different companies collaborate and to what extent they go it alone is definitely one that people are interested in. I have another question here. Uh, asking, what do you think of the industry consortium MIH, which was initiated by Foxconn? So I, I believe that's uh, collaborating not only on software but also the hardware. What do you think about that? Is is that something that could work despite you know your obvious commitment to investing? Well, we in are. You're I mean, like I said, we are not doing everything ourselves. Uh, we have yeah. a, a, a great group of partners that we work with. Uh, for example, uh, you know, Thomas driving the chips that we, we work with NVIDIA, um, you know, they supply us with uh, their latest AI driving, uh, Thomas driving chips. Uh, we work with Qualcomm, our smart cabin, you know, uh, chipsets. Uh, we work with sensors uh, that produce LiDAR, produces uh, uh, camera. Um, so we work with them. It's not like we're not working with our, you know, like top-notch suppliers. But the architect um, of putting that in your vehicle, uh, the design, um, the, the algorithm that, that we come up with, and the, um, the, the, the way that we customize our cars, that's something that we want to own in-house. It doesn't mean that we want to make everything ourselves. We don't want to make, you know, I don't know, uh, fender benders. So we don't want to make, uh, you know, uh, steering wheels. I mean, we, we, we have good suppliers for that, but they are core parts of the vehicle that we want to own ourselves. The other challenge that comes with all of these changes in both the hardware and the software is how does the insurance industry deal with that? Do you have any thoughts on how the insurance industry could evolve to handle all of these changes, especially around the software? Well, that's why the regulation currently is not, you know, changing or, or, or re, re, redirecting the liability to 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 a different, you know, so the person still sitting inside the vehicle will be responsible for the vehicle. Um, so I think it will take, that's what I'm saying, the regulation will take a while uh, before, um, you know, including in insurance agencies to really understand the, where the liability is if it's in the, you know, robo-taxi or no human driver scenarios. Um, and what, what, you know, how do you define liability and who takes over at that time? Um, so I think that those are things that needs to be so, uh, you know, solved before we actually have commercial operations on the road. And what role does Xpeng and companies like Xpeng have to play in helping to develop that regulation? How, how actively are you speaking to regulators and suggesting ideas and this sort of thing? No, I think we have a dialogue with insurance providers, a dialogue with, uh, you know, uh, um, I would say, 
regulators in, in different aspects. Um, it is uh, an area that I think uh, still uh, are not uh, very clear uh, to, to both the regulators and to the players because it's evolving so quickly. Uh, and I think uh, they also, there's a fundamental framework needs to be really understood before uh, I think specific rules can be introduced. So I think that'll take time um, to, to play out, but we, we constantly talk to uh, the players involved in that process. Someone in the audience is, is asking you for a prediction, which seems appropriate given the nature of this series. Uh, they're asking if you think that the world will be able to achieve the, the growing consensus that we should hit 100% electric vehicle sales, zero emissions electric vehicle sales by 2035. <laughs> A little bit away, but what, what do you think? Well, I, I, first of all, I think uh, uh, it will be very close, but uh, there will, there will always be a long tail. I mean, you know, the world 100%, I mean, there will always be a long tail in some countries, some part, play, parts that there's no infrastructure or there has been a slow adoption. But by and large, I think uh, uh, most of the major market you focus on is going to be all electric. We're hearing a little, a little bit about electric car makers getting involved in the metaverse. How involved will XPON be in this space? Do you have any plans? Well, it's a very intriguing place to be, uh, Metaverse. Uh, um, you know, I, I haven't been there yet, so I, I'd love to uh, <laughs> uh, take a tour. Um, but uh, we, we do have teams that really think about that. Um, in fact, we have registered trademarks that could be used in Metaverse uh, scenarios. Uh, um, but I think it's too early, and I think we still need to understand what it can do and as a company, what is the most proper uh, way to, to be involved. Um, so as I say, we are studying it. Can, can you share with us what any of those sort of hypothetical metaverse scenarios might be? It's just I mean, too much on my mind. I think it probably it's not you know, something I want to you know, describe specifically. Okay. Yeah. We'll, we'll just have to wait and see then. All right, a little bit more down to earth. What, what are your views on the battery swapping market and its growth in China? Well, I think it's an uh, interesting concept. Um, and I think, uh, uh, but it will require a lot of resources um, because it's not easy you know, to build uh, those stations, not easy to warehouse those batteries. Uh, all the cars need have the same format, which is not, not currently the case. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, um, if there's no uh, scale, it's very difficult to see that become an efficient uh, way of um, charging. So uh, we still believe in the most efficient charging is supercharging uh, network uh, that you can plug in and, and charge, uh, especially for the, 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 the customers that we, we, we talk to. Um, they, they, to them, you know, having the, the, the most convenient, the closest and, and the highest density solutions will be the easiest. Um, and people are started to developing driving habits to, to, that allows them to use charging network more efficiently. And, and would you expect that, that XPunit and companies like XPunit have to be pretty hands-on and involved in developing that network of charges? Or do you imagine that it's going to be something like the petrol infrastructure now, where you have companies that, that run gasoline stations and they're, they're certainly not necessarily the companies making the cars? Well... XPEN is already building our own network of uh, supercharging uh, stations. Um, so mm -hmm. we actually have built uh, about 600 of those uh, charging stations in China. And uh, we also covered pretty much all the municipal, uh, municipal level uh, uh, um, uh, 
uh, areas in China. So essentially, the entire China we have coverage uh, for our charging station. But uh, we, those are the we, the two things we do differently. We only focus on supercharging, so which that utilizes uh, fast charging technologies that we develop. Uh, so we want to offer a superior experience to our customers. Uh, we also actually um, uh, have our vehicles that's able to charge in any of the third-party charging networks too. There's hundreds of thousands of those charging stations. So this is a, a network we feel like that can give us, uh, give our customers a superior experience and better access to charging technology. The same time, mm -hmm. uh, it's not the only charging solution our drivers can have. They can actually charge mm -hmm. in hundreds of thousands of different stations. That makes a lot of sense. Now, in the longer term, do you see Xpeng's involvement in that space as a sort of a bridging thing to help build up the infrastructure in the near term, or do you actually intend to stay involved in in that area in the longer term as well, even after there's you know a much more robust network established by governments, private companies, and so on? Well, I think it will probably be in that in that area for a while uh, because so far uh, the feedback we hear is that the government uh, or the third party uh, um, solutions are not really producing good user experience. Um, a lot mm -hmm. of them are slow charging uh, stations. A lot of those are poorly managed. Uh, the charging piles are not functional. Uh, the APP are very difficult to use. Uh, some of the parking space are occupied. You know, people don't have the confidence that they can get you know, charged uh, efficiently and comfortably uh, in those areas. So having your own charging network will alleviate some of those concerns. Uh, but right, I mean, the, the, obviously the infrastructure are upgrading as we speak, and it will become more and more dense. And at some point, I think we need to think about um, what's the role of our uh, supercharging network. But so far, it's providing a superior experience. So when we speak about you moving into markets beyond China, are you guys anticipating that you'll need to help build up the supercharging network in those markets as well, much as you've done at home? Well, that's something we have. We don't have an answer for yet. Um, right now, obviously, given the small number we have in Europe, we're not building our own network yet. Uh, but obviously, when we reach a critical mass, uh, whether we should partner or, or build, um, those questions need to be you know, answered then. Now, a lot of people talk about electric cars as clean cars, but obviously, you're only as green as, as the grid that you're plugged into. Uh, do you think that the, the grids in China and elsewhere are greening Fast enough? Well, I think uh, it's a very good question that's being asked uh, from the very beginning of the industry. You know, um, clearly, we, you know, we, we use electricity. So at the user scenario, there's zero emission. So in the cities you drive, it produces no carbon emission, which I think is very important because the, the density of uh, carbon emission is in, the, in urban areas. And we help to reduce that density dramatically um, if we actually have enough you know, sort of electric vehicle on the road. The second thing is that um, the electricity come from you know, different sources. Obviously in China, it depends on which region that you live in. Some of those are probably water or hydro-based. Some of those may be coal-based. Some of those are wind-based. Um, but I think that one trend is very clear is that renewable energy as a percentage of the overall electric grid uh, production is on the rise uh, for decades. Uh, it's now you know, double digits and it's, it's rising pretty fast. So I think uh, it also, give you the confidence that, you know, the, the more that you use electricity, the more you can actually leverage the clean, uh, sort of the, the shift towards uh, clean energy um, that's mandated by the Chinese government. And then the third thing is that um, 
I, I think in, uh, in a, for a company that's focused on, on EV, we also want to make sure that our um, the production, our uh, users, you know, the, the full life cycle that we have as much uh, green consideration as possible. Um, that's why we actually have produced uh, um, our first ESG report to the market uh, some, uh, around summer last year. And we actually, you know, really, you know, painted the, the pictures of what we are doing to really, you know, make, make sure that we actually, you know, focus on the environment and clean energy. And I think uh, what we are, you know, quite uh, happy is that, you know, the market recognized that. And we actually now rated by MSCI as a double A for ESG, which is probably the highest rating for any auto companies um, in the world. Uh, we actually were much higher than Tesla. So in a way that uh, we are doing a lot, uh, but, but I think the question is that, um, um, uh, I would say a, a definite yes, uh, if you think about EV as a, whether it'll be cleaner and greener to use compared to traditional tra uh, 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 automobiles. I think that the answer is definitely yes. I think you've been very generous with your time this morning. Um, we've actually run a little bit over, so let's wrap it up there. Thank you so much for joining us. And uh, I look forward to hearing more about uh, flying cars and the metaverse and, and everything else that you get up to in the year ahead. Thank you, Katrina. Very nice to be on the show. Thank you. Well, thank you again to Brian for his time and thank you for tuning in. This podcast was produced by Thomas Shum in Hong Kong and you can find more episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Acast. Also check us out at breakingviews.com and on Twitter where our handle is at breakingviews.